Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North. To the citizens of the world, welcome to Forum Borealis and a new episode called This is the Black Economy. To enlighten us on the matter, we are conversing with Catherine Austin Fitz, President of the Solari Report and Solari Investment Advisory Services. She has a lifetime in finances with an MBA from the Wharton School and even studied Mandarin at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Her career background is in businesses and banking, among else Goldman Sachs. Fitz served as managing director and first female member of the board of directors of the notorious Wall Street investment bank Dylan Reed and Company. She was president of the investment bank and financial software developer Hamilton Securities Group, and she's even served as assistant secretary of housing and federal housing commissioner at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development in the first Bush administration. She has designed and closed over $25 billion of transactions and investments to date and has led portfolio and investment strategy for $300 billion of financial assets and liabilities. She's been a board member of innumerable schools, banks, councils, institutes, committees, clubs, churches, associations, and commissions. She founded the Solari Report to offer a unique perspective on how to navigate the opportunities and risks in the global financial system and political economy also taking heed of the black economy that otherwise eventually breaks down all financial models. She's a regular speaker and frequent guest on various radio talk shows like Coast to Coast and podcasts, runs her own blog at Solari and writes columns for Scoop Media. In recent years, she's been a frequent lecturer at the Secret Space Program conferences, offering a unique economic context to these shady affairs, and is often collaborating with her friends, Dr. Joseph Farrell and Richard Dolan. Today, she brings this perspective into our own series on the timeline of the breakaway civilization. Today, we are so happy to finally have with us Catherine Fitz. Welcome to the show, uh, Catherine. Al, it's great to be on. 
Indeed, Leo. And, you know, like I told you, we've had uh, other people on to cover aspects of this murky story, this timeline we are following. Uh-huh. And uh, you, you've you been missing, you, you've been glimmering with your uh, absence because we do need, you know, the follow the money. Uh-huh. We do need this angle. Yeah. And, you know, like everyone says, oh, uh, breaking news. We're, we're first on that. We're first on this. We're lost on everything, but we're very <laughs> thorough. <laughs> we sweep everything people left behind. So we go in depth. You just be prepared. Uh-huh, and I may, it depends. Uh, maybe not today. We'll see because money isn't my forte, but sometimes I start a rant myself. Uh-huh. So it's more or less a conversation. Okay. Our trademark is conversation. Conversations. Okay. More than like a, a interview where, you know, I ask a one-liner and... I think it's great. You know, I like to have conversations. So your approach is my approach. Cool. But uh, I have some questions prepared for at least the last part where we face over to the black budget and the black economy. I want people to understand what that is. And we can't, of course, avoid the classified space program and all that. But I guess that's right. where we'll end up. Right. I, and I don't know a lot about the space part. I know a, a lot about the money disappearing part. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. that's your angle, right? That's what we have you on for. We have, uh, you know, covered other aspects with, with Dolan and, and Farrell and others. Right. So our listeners are no virgins to this. It's just that your input... So let me just give you my... Uh, basically, here's our point of view, my point of view. Yeah. What I'm interested in is my listeners, my readers, my subscribers in having a free and inspired life. Because everybody who can have a free and inspired life makes it more difficult for the system to control. Right. So I'm I'm trying to help people stay away from the parasite. And the more people who can not get harvested by the parasite, the weaker the parasite gets. That's kind of my beat on things. And so... I'm interested in every area that impacts on the health and well-being of you, your family. And so I'm trying to integrate millions of different areas and make it simple for you because people are too busy to talk to their financial person and then their legal person and then their accounting person and then their geopolitical person. Yeah, sure. Do you know what I mean? They need, they need integration. So I'm an expert in nothing and trying to integrate everything. So it's my nature to find you know, so for UFOs, it's Richard Dolan, or for the Nazis, it's Farrell, or I try yeah. and find the best in each area and then integrate it into how to help people and families be free. Yeah. Well, I am aware of, of your contributions. I have listened to okay. you here and there. So um, so we, I think we'll get, manage to get that point out. Yeah. Okay, good. As long as you know I'm sort of an expert in nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, who is? <laughs> Not even Mr. Global. I mean, look at the mess he's making. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. If you look at, uh, well, that's why I love money, because money is a map. Right, good point. Yeah. Like I just said, follow the money, right? Yeah, mm. exactly. Okay. So our listeners, some will know you already, some won't. So I suggest that we, we start off by you sharing with us you're, because like people heard in the intro, you've been working for the Bush administration, even worse, the senior Bush, CIA <laughs> Bush. <laughs> so I guess we'll start there. Although I want to say something Joseph Farrell told me, and that is that you're the first 
female on this Wall Street firm. What's it called? Dillard as uh, the first, yeah, as the first female partner. Yeah, and member of the board of directors. Yeah, Dylan and Dylan Reed. If you, I have an Reed. online book called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. And uh, it's at Dunwalkie, D-U-N-W-A-L-K-E dot com. And it, it describes a little bit about the history of Dylan Reed and my career there, as well as gets into all the many things we're going to talk about today. Right. Sort of my journey on how I discovered how the world really works. Yeah, my association to them is killing Kennedy, but that's, that's another matter. Well, actually, I think that's a very important story. Mm. It's, a, it's a very important story. And... When you understand how the assassination was organized, executed, and covered up, it's the yeah. single best way I know of really understanding how the governance system in America works. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we regard it as a putsch. So uh, right. these people we are going to discuss today, I guess uh, that was a central event in the developments that – you know, made made it what it is today. But let's rewind then to your time in the administration. I guess you were at that point a uh, sincere civil servant or what you call it, that you, you know, went into it, want to better, want to do something. But I, I guess also you gradually discovered stuff. So could we take it from there? Yes. So I went to work in the first um, Bush administration in 1989 and became Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner. In the United States, the mortgage market is very uh, very much run by government credit. So the vast majority of single-family mortgages in the United States are directly or indirectly insured by a series of different insurance programs at government agencies or what's called the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie uh uh, and then also the banks, of course, have deposit insurance. So you you end up with a very high percentage of uh, of the mortgage system essentially socialized and managed by credit. And the lead person who runs the largest governmental mortgage insurance fund is the FHA commissioner. Mm. And it's a position that allows you – every home sale in the United States has a HUD form from the agency. And so – it is if you want to understand how the money works in local economies or at a really, you know, sort of a bottom up level in the economy, it is one of the greatest uh, away from the Federal Reserve. It's the greatest database <laughs> on how all the money works in every one of 3,100 counties. And I was very interested. You mean the HUD uh, database? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one way to look at the U.S. federal government is you have it's called 21 covered agencies. Think of every one of them as a database that's being aggregated right. into what I call the database behind the scenes. And you'll see 21, or the citizens will see 21 agencies. What I see is a small number of defense contractors controlling and running all the information and payment systems. Right. And if you look at it, if you look at the U.S. federal government as a database um, about money, which is the primary uh, sort of what the data is about, Mm -hmm. um, what you realize is you're really looking at a highly centralized data beast, so to speak. Mm. And if you look at the power of what they've been able to do with digital systems, whether it's intelligence or mind control, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Mm. But, you know, most Americans don't view the federal government that way. They're still 
off voting for what I call the prisoner at the top. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Anyway, so so I went to become FHA commissioner, and um, I was working for a secretary who was I would describe as part of what was is now called the neocon group, mm. and I ran smack into the incredible lawlessness of that group. Yeah, you you discovered corruption and stuff. But let me ask you first, um, Papa Bush. I don't regard him actually as a prisoner at the top. I I regard him as one of the few players who who uh, ascended to to the public top. What do you think about that? Right. I mean, you you met him, didn't you? Yeah. No, I knew Bush mm. uh, not well. I wasn't close. I, I I worked. I was a partner of a firm run by the person who became Secretary of Treasury in the Bush administration, and he and Bush were very close. Right. So so that was a longstanding traditional relationship, but. Um, and I got to know sort of the Bush team working in the in in the eighty four and eighty eight elections. Eighty four uh, was when Bush was vice president, and then eighty eight when he went in as president. But and remember when Bush became vice president under Reagan, he got control essentially of the of the intelligence and um, and enforcement line. So he ran. Basically, the court systems, the Department of Justice, the federal enforcement, and the yeah, he was Reagan's Cheney, basically. Yeah, but he had run, remember he had been the director of the CIA. Yeah. So it's the equivalent of giving the head of the secret police control of all intelligence enforcement, and putting them in a position to really build out who the judges are and and build out control of the courts. That was a group that was very into the nuts and bolts of control. Mm. Uh, one of the things they did that was critical was when Bush got that in that position, they engineered an executive order that permitted them to have private corporations do highly classified work. And that was the beginning of the real building out of the data beast. Um, like, like we've seen under Obama when he has privatized so many, like, let's say, NASA tasks and stuff. Well, the big the big privatization was when you privatize the information systems and the payment systems, because the banks had already been privatized when you created the Federal Reserve. Yeah. So your bank accounts are controlled by private banks, but now your information and payment systems are controlled by private defense contractors. And they need to be neutral. They need to be state controlled to avoid uh, uh, corruption and monkey business. Well, I'll give you an example. When I first became Assistant Secretary of Housing, under the under the statute, the first thing I did was read the statutes to understand what the authorities and responsibilities of my position was. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the law was very clear on, the large single-family mortgage fund was supposed to be run on a self-supporting basis. And so I tried to get the accounting on whether or not we were in compliance and was told by my administrative staff that the accounts reported to a different assistant secretary and I wasn't allowed to talk to them. Hmm. So to make a long story short, I'd raised a lot of money for Bush during the election. And uh, what I got was I got, I always tell people I got presidential cufflinks and the accountants moved over to report to me. And when they moved over, what I discovered is I was losing $11 million a day in the single family fund. Wow. So to say, to say that we were not in compliance, we were not in compliance. But then, what I 
to dig deeper and really get the data I needed to solve the problem. Because we had, at the time, 10 federal regions and eight, uh, 80 field offices. And as you know, real estate is very place-based. So hmm. I didn't want to give just one instruction. I needed to give 80 instructions. Anyway, so I dug down and tried to get the data, and the defense contractor that controlled the information systems refused to give it to me. But, but could he do that? Wasn't you in, in an authority position to to get it? So let me explain how the deep state works. Mm -hmm. There, there are the political appointees, whether it's the president elected or the people he chooses to appoint, and and supposedly they're running the government. The reality is you have a deep state that controls the banking accounts, the information systems, and the data. And I, I hear they refer to their elected positions as temps. <laughs> <laughs> I, that one I haven't heard, but okay. the reality is you, you are running, there's a reality TV show that's, that's one layer, the political layer, and then you have a deeper layer. Hmm. And if you want to bring change to the government, you have to deal with that deeper layer. Now, let me give you an example of the conundrum of the, the people trying to run that system. When I used to get called into the secretary's office and the secretary would say, you know, I've just discovered this corruption is going on. I want this program stopped immediately. Mm -hmm. And then I would leave and he would call in my general deputy and say, I just told Fitz to stop this program. Make sure she fails. Wow. So he's two-faced. Well, but here's the problem. He needed to tell some of the media that he was doing something about the corruption, but he needed to promise the insiders. Well, not just insiders, but the black budget guys. Yeah. He needed, you know, because Oliver North once said that HUD was the candy store of covert revenues. So, so he needed to keep the money flowing. Mm. Now, let's look. Let's go deeper because at the heart of this is the dependency of the U.S. system and the global system on organized crime and war. So let me step back and tell a story of something that happened in the summer of 2000 and then come back to the secretary giving opposing orders to two different political appointees. Sure. I was giving a speech to a wonderful group of people outside of Philadelphia in the summer of 2000 they have a conference once a year. They're called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation. They have a conference once a year to talk about how to evolve our society spiritually. The people are very well educated, I would say financially secure, and wonderful people, truly interested in evolving our society spiritually. So a friend of mine had asked me to give a speech, which later became a very famous article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. And it's supposed to be a light, funny expose of how the intersection of illegal cash flows interacts with Washington and Wall Street and creates the kind of corruption we're dealing with. So <laughs> I said to this wonderful group of, uh, I was explaining that the Department of Justice had just uh, told a reporter that I was working with that the U.S. economy in 1998 launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars of all illegal monies. We're the global leader in money laundering. Uh, uh, hang on, what they were laundering, uh, how much? This is at 1998, yep. $500 billion to a trillion a year. So the United States... 500 billion to a trillion. You see, uh, the reason I'm asking you is that I have... Uh, I'm, later in the show, I'm going to confront you with a lot of missing billions and trillions and hear right. your take on it. But this one I ha haven't noticed yet. So that's new to me. Okay. Now, this was 1998. With the financial fraud, it's much bigger. 
Yeah, sure. And it doesn't include the money that's disappearing from the federal government. I wasn't including that that, that amount. Okay. But anyway, so so a half a billion to a trillion. So we're we're the global leader in money laundering as of 1998. She was describing um, it was in connection with congressional testimony about the allegations of U.S. intelligence agencies uh, dealing narcotics trafficking into South Central LA in 80s and 90s, so-called dark alliance allegations. Is, is this connected to the Iran-Contra scandal? Yes. Mm, okay, I'm with you. Remember, Iran-Contra, when I said that the Bush got a hold of the enforcement intelligence, so he's basically running the National Security Council, which is running the enforcement intelligence, and Iran-Contra went through that mechanism. Right. Okay, and and a lot of when I said Oliver North said that HUD was the candy store of covert revenues, the the Iran Contra financial fraud was a lot of pump and dump of the housing and mortgage and real estate markets. So HUD, was, okay, I thought it I thought it was drugs basically and weapons. Well, you know, there are two sides of the balance sheet. So you're you're trading in guns and weapons for a variety of situations. Mm. Um, and to finance that, you're doing financial fraud. If you look at the financial fraud, I assure you, it was far bigger than just guns. <laughs> and drugs? Well, the, so, so one side, you know, the fundamental business that's generating cash is drugs and financial fraud, but then you have to launder it with the financial fraud. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, that's two sides of the coin. I get it. Yeah. Right. So, so always think in terms of both sides of the income statement and both sides of the balance sheet. Yeah, the black and the white side, basically, right? Right. And you've got an overt side and a covert side. So yeah. uh, anyway, so I'm describing to these wonderful people how the Department of Justice had said we launder $500 billion to a trillion as of 1998. And I said to them, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in laundering illegal <laughs> money? And they said, well, you know, the stock market might go down because that money would go to the European and Asian exchanges and not to the New York Stock Exchange. And we'd have trouble financing the government deficit because we need to borrow money to keep keep the government going. Mm. So I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. And if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your neighborhood, your county, your state, thus offending the people who control $500 billion dollars. 500 billion to a trillion a year and the accumulated capital thereon, which is quite a formidable amount of capital. Mm -hmm. Who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, only one would put the, push the button. Only one with a death wish. <laughs> I, actually, if, if I had voted, it would be two, but yeah, right. I wasn't voting. So, so I said to the other 99, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our taxes to go up. We don't want our government checks to stop. And we don't want our pension funds and mm. uh, brokerage accounts to go down in value. So I said, what I discovered that day is the problem was not that they would not push the red button. The problem that no one was having an honest conversation about the issue, because in fact, what we need to do, we don't need to push the red button. We need to turn it green. In other words, right. we, we need to re-engineer how our economy works so that we can make money on helping be successful as opposed to liquidating them with narcotics. Hang on, I just have to comment. That's such a great point, actually, because uh, most people are praying for a crack because, you know, it will reboot everything. But you're right, they're keeping us hostages. Right. And as long as they have weaved into our status 
the, this corruption, then we're all going down with the ship. Right. That's so brilliant. Right. So, so essentially, what you can do is you can, if you can divide, if you can get people to div- sort of divide and conquer and then liquidate each other, mm. you can keep it going by composting various groups of human, and that's how they're doing. So. Um, anyway, so so let's go back to the poor secretary telling me to stop the program and telling, um, you know, my my counterpart or my my general deputy to keep it going. In other words, he the you know the people that day in the audience wanted to hear that they were good spiritually evolved people and they wanted to hear that they're good, but they want their check. So if you're the president of the United States, you walk into the Oval Office, you say to your political guy. You know, so you say to Steve Bannon, you know, what does everybody want? Or you're Carl Rove in the Bush administration, and your Carl Rove says everybody wants their check. They spent two billion dollars getting you elected. They all want their check. And you turn to your Secretary of the Treasury, and he says, well, you better be nice to the people who control five hundred billion to a trillion dollars a year. Now, right. I also think part of the treadmill that that political machinery is on is we have a huge black budget. And they absolutely believe that they can't tell people what they're spending the money on or why. They need it to be secret. Yeah, I want us to explore that in depth right. later. Yeah. And it's it's grown and grown and grown. Mm. And so and so if you're the secretary of a federal agency, as a political matter, you have to keep feeding the beast. Right. You have to keep feeding the beast. So you can't let the corruption stop, but you have to Everybody wants to hear that they're good and we're not corrupt and we're wonderful. Mm. You know, so I always say it this way. In 1950, you know, towards the end of World War II, George Keenan said, look, we've got 6% of the people and 50% of the resources to keep that going. We're going to have to drop a lot of bombs. And so Goldwater ran for president saying we're going to have to drop a lot of bombs. And the American people said, oh, no, we're good Christians. So then Jimmy Carter came along and said, well, if we're not going to drop a lot of bombs, we have to cut back. So, you know, he shivered in front of the fireplace and the American people said, no, we don't want to cut back. Mm -hmm. And the Bushes came along and said, you know something, you're all good Christians. Here's your check. Don't ask questions. And everybody said, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's in the nature of human beings. I think Buddha said once that uh, the root of all evil is ignorance. Right. You know, the monkeys like, right. See nothing, say nothing, hear nothing. Well, it's scary because I I have now kind of battled the world out with the black budget guys for many, many years. Mm. And it's very, very scary. You know, I can't tell you how many times I was 100% sure that I was going to be dead within 30 to 60 seconds. Mm. And you have to, you, I don't know if you've ever heard this, the game where you go into a big mansion and everybody, say the mansion has 40 rooms and everybody makes a list of their 40 possessions that they most value. And then as they go through the mansions, they have to give up one of their possessions. So I played that game in real life. And in the last room I had, you know, my life and freedom and you had to choose which was more important. And I chose freedom right? and just, and then I lucked out. So all I can tell you is you have to, we're all going to go through a process and we're all going to have to decide which is more important, freedom or our life. And Good point. Yeah, and, and what happens is depends on that choice because as the English poet said, we are many and they are few. Mm. Yeah, they are basically 0.1%. Yes. But, but when this um, 
secretary told you with one face that, yeah, go after it. And to the others, he said, make sure nothing happens. <laughs> he knew back then that you were naive, uh, that you didn't know, right? Or did you know? Well, here's the thing. I'd grown up in a neighborhood that was destroyed by mortgage fraud. And it wasn't destroyed, but very much harmed by mortgage fraud and narcotics. Right. And I had I had seen a lot of the covert game uh, in a variety of different capacities. Now, I it was very confusing to me how it all worked. Mm. And, and I got on very clearly at a young age to the fact that, you know, the world was run from the covert side and money kind of was the currency. And so to make any sense out of the world, I started very young following the money because it, the whole world made no sense. It was a puzzle palace. So And it was funny because if you looked at the drugs destroying my neighborhood, everybody's excuse on why they had to do this was for the money. And and it was pretty obvious to me as a child, and it took me many years to sort of price it out and prove it. The equity value you were creating and the you were destroying in the businesses and the and the homes was far greater than the money you were making on the drugs. Right. But what the people running the world would say is that equity value is the little people's it's not ours and this way we can centralize control and centralize the wealth mm. the source of inequality right now is the fact that the financial system is really run covertly and controlled covertly and it's harvesting everyone and they're they're you know the playbook is there are millions of recipes the narcotics trafficking mortgage fraud are only two of them but what was very interesting is if you look at the primary fraudulent schemes that were used when I was a kid to destroy my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They were the same fraudulent schemes I found when I worked at the, uh, at the, uh, when I was assistant secretary of housing and they were the primary schemes used in the housing bubble that led to the bailouts in right. 2009 to 2012. And they're still happening today. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, sure. But but obviously yeah. you thought you could make a difference, right? I mean, you were in a good position um, at that point. And I guess you didn't know how high up it went or how vast it was. No, no, I, I knew how high up it went. But I believed that the guys at the top mm. were really sad about how things had to be run. Right. You know, it's very de the higher you go, the more depressing it can be. Yeah. And um, and I thought they really, if I could find a way to make more money turning it around, I thought that they really wanted me to do that. Mm. So when I got in trouble with the machinery, I was in the process of really trying to figure it out. Now, what was interesting is they sort of have a clean team and a dirty team, and they swing them back and forth. So the dirty team goes in, steals all the money, and the clean team comes in and fixes it up so you can steal all the money again. <laughs> you know okay, what I mean? Okay, good cop, bad cop, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I was part of the clean team. So when I went mm. into FHA, I instituted a whole series of reforms that, in fact, then made it possible for them to go in and destroy it again. Mm. They had a housing bubble during Iran-Contra, but once I cleaned it up and sort of got it all fixed up, they were able to, you know, double down. Mm. And what they did was they took the fraud that they'd used during Iran-Contra for real estate and housing and mortgages. And this time they did it both for the real estate and housing and the stock market and layered it with derivatives. So it was much, much bigger. But it was it was remarkably similar models to what they developed in Iran-Contra. 
Yeah, because there was no accountability when that nope. uh, story was exposed. It just took a few symbolic people and, and then it was back to business as usual. Right. So I always say crime that pays is crime that stays. Mm. And in fact, if you if you want to understand real solutions, one of the best bodies of work to understand what the real solutions are is from an economist named Robert Axelrod. Mm-hmm. Um He's got a book called The Evolution of Cooperation, and one of the things he explains is why transparency is so important. So if if you can run around the world covertly and do all sorts of dirty stuff, but still be socially acceptable because the people who are, you know, feeling the flow of cash flow and checks from you don't really know what you did to get the money, mm. then you can run the system like this. So the system depends on what uh, what we're now calling fake news. John Rappaport has been calling it fake news for um, you know decades. So so you need a feedback loop. One of the things that I I ended up litigating with the federal government, and one of the things that astonished me was how much money they spent trying to destroy me when in fact you could just shoot me and it would be much cheaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but let's get back to how you uh, came at odds with them. So you did you f- blew the whistle or, or or file a lawsuit? So what happened well, there? No, what happened was when I was FHA commissioner, I was implementing a series of reforms mm-hmm. and it was working. Mm. And what they needed to do was, you know, it was slowing down, I'm sure the money that they were taking out both the real estate industry, so you had a whole real estate industry that was playing with you in a variety of ways, and um, and basically they were getting deals at below market prices, and and then I think the there was the flow of black budget. So whether it's payola or black budget, I was cutting off, you know, a variety of different sources. So um, basically. Uh, Kemp tried to move me into another position. I'd gone to Kemp and said, look, you're not happy with me here. Why don't we go to White House personnel and find another position? And he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to admit a lot of things openly. It was sort of, it was a very strange situation. Anyway, so he tried to move me another position. I refused to accept it. That meant I had to leave. Mm. I left and was then asked, um, uh, by the administration to go back in as a governor of the Federal Reserve. So about when was this? Uh, that was 1991. Ni- uh, 1990-91. So you, three years you managed no, to... No, I was, I was only there for 18 months. Yep. So I left and I decided, I had discovered the internet when I was in the administration. Wow, that was early. Yeah, so I realized that this new technology could revolutionize the learning metabolisms in local economies and make the small business, small farm much more efficient and much more competitive globally. So I decided to start an investment bank that would circulate equity locally and build software tools that would dramatically reduce the cost of raising equity capital. And um, one of our focuses was on real estate because If you go into, let's say we go into a neighborhood and the real estate is all worth X, Mm. but there's a lot of crime and and not enough employment, if you can swing in jobs and lower the crime rate, the value of the real estate goes up tremendously. Mm. And so my version of pushing, you know, of turning the red button green 
was let's figure out a way where the pension funds can make a fortune on the capital gains coming from turning neighborhoods around. And when you turn them around, you significantly reduce the amount of government money you need to support the neighborhood. And so whether it's lowering the cost to the taxpayer or increasing the value of the businesses or real estate. Anyway, so I we started an investment bank. It turned out to be very successful. But this was after you, you went off the administration, right? And, yeah. and you declined yes. getting into the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I'd already started the business. Mm, okay. And I was very clear that I couldn't solve the problem working in a federal agency or at the central bank. In other words, you had to get in the trenches mm. and really look at a very molecular level at how the money was working and how to turn it around so everybody made money. And I was convinced that software technology and tools could help us deal with the complexity in a way that could really re-engineer constituents, political constituencies into uh, into sort of winning equity opportunities. I My success on Wall Street had come from dealing with highly complex situations that involve private and public sector and many different constituencies and everybody's angry at each other. And somebody has to get in the trenches and dig very deep to understand the detail and figure out, okay, you know, if we, if everybody does this, we can make the pie much bigger and let's slice up this new potential pie as follows and attract everybody out into the new pie. So, mm. um, you know, that was kind of my claim to fame on Wall Street. Anyway, so I, I decided, okay, we can do this for neighborhoods. And and I needed a software developer and investment bank that could prototype. Anyway, we, we got hired on competitive bid to uh, work for the Federal Housing Agency, mm-hmm. where I've been Assistant Secretary of Housing several years later, which gave me access to the data. Mm-hmm. That's what I really wanted was access to the data um, to, to really be able to map out the U.S. economy at a, you know, at a bo- in a bottom-up way and be able to simulate it, which took – we created a whole suite of software tools, including a tool called Community Wizard mm-hmm. that would allow us to publish and look at and manipulate the data on all federal government spending by place. So if you're a citizen in the United States and you vote for a congressman, you can't get the federal budget contiguous to your congressional district. You can't see it. Now, if you're going to hold your congressman accountable, that's what you need to see. You need to see the sources and uses of taxes and spending and federal credit and contracting and other resources contiguous to the world you walk around and see. That's what stops financial fraud, that kind of transparency. So Mm. what happened was uh, we were targeted by, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Enemy of the State. (laughs) Oh, yeah, indeed. Well, I played Will Smith in real life. (laughs) And (laughs) we were were targeted by what what they call a training program. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and we ended up, uh, I ended up spending 11 years in, in sort of litigation and litigation cleanup with the federal government. Because they were afraid that you would make a difference? Well, what happened or was... was it retaliation? No, they seized the company and seized all the software tools and databases, and it took me six years to get them back Jeez. from out of court. But um, Yeah, but was it for the motivation of harassment, or did they want your information, or what do you think was the motive here? Uh, one, I think it was a multiple 
There were multiple right. goals. One was to stop us from doing what we're doing because yet again, it was cutting off. Uh, I'll give you, I'll give you, we, we were cleaning up the HUD foreclosed or the defaulted mortgage portfolio. Mm. When we went to work for HUD, they were getting uh, recovery rates of 35 cents on the dollar. Mm. And the industry norm was much higher. And we were able to get that recovery rate to 70 to 90 cents, which is more than a double. So we, we got them above market rate. They were getting below market rate, but all that money was going to insiders. Hmm. And so to give you an example, uh, can I use a four-letter word? on? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, to give you an example, after we announced our first transaction and how we were going to bid it, I called the Harvard the, the, the guy who ran the real estate portfolio at the Harvard Endowment, who I knew for other reasons, I was calling about other reasons, but I just, they had a big HUD uh, subsidized portfolio that they bought from Warren Buffett. Mm. And I called him and he picked up the phone and he screamed, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Mike, how are you? And he said, uh, I hate this. We were using optimization technology mm-hmm. from uh, AT&T Bell Laboratories to, to, in, uh, to calculate the bids. And he said, I hate this uh, optimization model. He said, I'm used to winning because I'm smarter, not because I have to pay more. Mm, <laughs> mm. So we were, you know, we were using technology to squeeze out that the difference between 90 cents and 35 cents. And the, the sales were phenomenally profitable, although there were issues because if you look at who was bidding and winning, the wrong people had, uh, I think they were bidding on behalf of governmental entities, but they were bidding above market because they had governmental monies to play with is my suspicion. Anyway, um, but what we essentially... We, so they wanted to stop uh, you from yeah. losing money. Well, they wanted to stop me from making them the government. They they wanted me to stop helping the taxpayers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So and And so I was helping taxpayers and communities. They wanted me to stop. The second thing is that um, I think they wanted all of our software tools and databases because yeah, that's what I thought. Mm. What was happening is what what our software tools and databases were going to show was that there were many more mortgages existing in the markets than there were houses in the country. So you, I think, you know, what I believe is you had a situation where the amount of actual mortgages and mortgage-backed securities related to the government was far greater than was showing on their books. Mm. And, uh, you know, you had a real serious collateral fraud problem and financial fraud being done systemically by, you know, the, the New York Fed, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department of Justice was pretty big. And so I think they needed to make sure that transparency didn't happen. Exactly. But it was incredibly important that it be done in such a way that my credibility was destroyed yeah, because obviously they were afraid you were going to go out with uh, some of this information. Well, it was very interesting because I spoke around the world. I spoke in New Zealand. I spoke in Sweden. I spoke in London. I spoke throughout the United States about the the level of the fraud. And what was interesting is... Oh, already back then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. No, I started speaking in 98, 98. Right. I, between 1998 and, and 2006, mm. I I spoke all over the world about the fraud I mean, that's it. The, the, then no question why they wanted to stop you. Right. <laughs> that's enough. Well, but it was very uh, – I think what was very interesting for them and for me is the extent to which no one would believe me. 
Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So it it was funny at the Soprano TV show. I don't know if you've ever watched the Sopranos. Yeah, I have. Okay, so so it's a story about a mob family, a mafia family in New Jersey. Um the in about 2001, the Soprano TV show did a series of four shows on HUD fraud using the basic fraudulent. Remember when I said it's the same fraud pattern, you know, for the last 60 years? Mm-hmm. Well, they basically did a series of shows showing you a little bit about that that one fraud pattern. And I was driving down the highway right after the shows ran, and my old college roommate called me up and said, Fitz, she said, what you've been saying is true. I said, pray tell, why do you come around? Yeah. suddenly believe that? <laughs> and she said, have you seen the Soprano TV shows? They're saying you're right. I said, so wait a minute. If, if a TV show... <laughs> About a mobster says it's true, then it's true. But if I, as the former assistant secretary of housing, federal housing commissioner, and former partner of Dylan Reed and company in New York, uh, an all-round sort of reputable financial person say it's true, it's not true. And she said, right. (laughs) That's what they call cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Well, that's when I said, you know, in America, fact is fiction and fiction is fact. Right. So, so... One of the ways the system lets off steam is by using fictional stories to explain to you how the system works. And it's very interesting. I, you know, I published something called the Solari Report, and we have a section called Let's Go to the Movies. And the reason is I use movies to teach people about how the economy really works. Hmm. Because Hollywood basically tells you everything. <laughs> you just have to know which bits and pieces to pick out. Yeah, but, but then again, you have two phenomenons there. You have those who tell the story on behalf of those who want a narrative to get out. And then you have the renegade stories that right. occasionally can get out even in, right. in a big movie. Right, hmm. right. Anyway, so, so uh, but... But one of the things I discovered in that process is this fake news issue is at the heart of controlling or changing the system. Because if you are going to maintain financial liquidity, then it is imperative that you have the appearance of the rule of law, which means you will pay any amount of money to keep that appearance going. And literally, I estimated that between 1995 and 2010, they spent, you know, basically over, I think, 45 to $50 million trying to destroy my reputation um, and and run it. Well, part of it, it's a job program. You you got all these contractors (laughs) working on it. And I think one of my problems was just... uh, Hang on. Why couldn't they just pull the ordinary stuff, uh, either... Uh, threaten your family or make you bankrupt or they did all of those things oh and give you disease that's a common one too especially in intel well but here's the thing when it started i had remarkable training and i just assumed it was a political food fight i find a political solution we just solve it and shake hands and you know it's over Mm. And yeah, you destroyed my country, my company, but that's the, that's how things work. So I was just planning on a quick sort of solve it and cut and run. And the problem was, if you look at what they were doing, I I was very 
furious about the fact that they were basically genociding certain groups in the country. I mean, we were, they were dropping SWAT teams into neighborhoods, rounding up kids just walking down the street and putting them in, you know, putting them in private prisons so that the stock would go up. Right. That's Clinton's uh, predators. (laughs) Right. So you're you're talking about running a slave labor system. Right. And, And it was that, Here's the problem, Al, when you, if you allow it to be done to one, it can be done to anyone. Oh, yeah, sure. That's the part. You can't let that take hold. No, no. And, th- and then they came for me and there was no one left to defend me. Exactly. Mm. So, so it was really funny because I sat down. Uh, I- I've always felt a tremendous obligation to find real solutions to the problems that ail us. I mean, that's kind of what we all come here for a reason. And that's what you know, that's what got me fired up. So I wanted to find a way of reengineering the financial system so that we could align financial capital with living systems to create a healthy planet. Anyway, and I sat down, they came and they offered me a quickie settlement that was, you know, the equivalent of in my world, me admitting I was guilty when I wasn't. And they had no evidence of wrongdoing. They kept trying to frame us and I got my back up about it, and I saw what they were doing with the slave labor stuff, and I said, you know, I'm not going along. Mm. And it was funny because I, ha- I knew what, what, what was entailed to fight. I knew how hard it would be. I knew how lonely it would be. And it took me a couple And, and I guess they had a press on their side back then. There wasn't many uh, alternative outlets, right? You just – there was nothing. Mm. So I sat down. It took me a couple days, and I thought about can I really – you know, because it's supposed to be hopeless. You're not supposed to be able to beat them. Mm. And I said, can I do this? And I thought and thought about it. And I finally realized I have to be able to do it so that when it's done, I still have the capacity to love. Right. Yeah. And then I had to think about, okay, can I do it and and survive? So what I finally realized is, okay, I can fight. But I have to fight in a way that when it's over, I haven't lost my love. So good point. And that was yeah. the compl- yeah, that was the complicated part. And then I decided, okay, I can do it. But that's when I knew, you know, it was freedom or my life, and I had to put freedom first. Yeah. Not just mine, but everybody's. Yeah, yeah, but yours are ours. So. Mm. Well, but here's the thing: I I don't get a, a kick out of making money out of genocide. And we're looking at an economy where everybody's making money, not everybody, many, many people are making money from genocide. Mm. And it's all the things happening that are harming human beings and harming living systems, humans are doing, we're implementing. Why are we doing it? It doesn't make any sense. But wherever I challenge anybody on it, they say, well, I have to make money, (laughs) Mm. which gets me back to turning the red button green. So. Um, so yeah, so I just decided I was gonna, I was gonna fight and you know, it went on, it's a shaggy dog story because basically I finally finished, uh, you know, I settled the litigation in 2006. So we had, uh, 13 tracks of litigation, 18 audits and investigations, a smear campaign and physical harassment. So you know, the story balloons into something very complex. And part of winning required putting it all up on the web in relational software so that people could grapple with the complexity of what happened. So there was a web uh, to use uh, for your benefit already back then? 
Yeah. So, so when I created the software in investment bank, our focus was, you know, when the web first started, we were, we were using the web to make the software tools that would let you see how the money worked in your neighborhood. So we we're building software tools where you come into our website in 1996, 97, and you say, okay, my neighborhood's, you know, my congressional district or my zip code here. And you start to map out in GIS software, how the money works in your place and how it could work. Mm -hmm. So it was to help people envisioning using those resources. I'll give you an example. Um, I was working with a group of wonderful pension fund leaders um, and uh, on how to really sort of re-engineer the economy. And their number one concern was the pension funds not having enough money for the boomer retirements. And I gave them a presentation in 1997 about what we discovered about how we could re-engineer government investment and private investment in neighborhoods and make dramatic capital gains and help the middle class migrate to a more globalized world. And it was really funny because, uh, you know, whenever we made that presentation, people were astonished to discover, oh, things really can work. Mm. There really are solutions to this. And we had the president of the largest pension funds in the country on, on the advisory board. And he looked at me and said, you don't understand. It's too late. They've given up the country on the country, they're moving all the money out starting in the fall. They're moving it to China and to Asia. And he was talking about the whole globalization process. And this was uh, right before this was before the 2000s, right? Yeah, this was right after they created the WTO. And so essentially what they did, what happened was they created the WTO and then and then they bubbled the Western economies with both stock market and the housing and mortgages. And that uh, it's called I call it the strong dollar policy. They suppressed the price of gold, and that enabled them to print lots of basically dollars that they could spread globally, and suck a huge amount of money of equity out of the Western economies for reinvestment in a variety of places, including the emerging markets. So you had a major shift of how the global economy and financial systems we're going to work. And, um, and that's really when the corruption in the U S government exploded mm. because they were pulling. And that's when the, we have now over $11 trillion missing from the U S federal government. That's when the money started to go missing. Yeah. We'll get to that. But this must have been, I mean, the court system must have been slightly better working back then. Otherwise they could just get you by having a corrupt judge or something. Well, we dealt we dealt with corrupt judges and we dealt with clean judges. It was a combination because remember, with thirteen tracks of litigation, there were many judges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But it ended with a settlement. It it ended with well, we we went through the first round uh, on everything consolidated into three major cases. We went into the uh, we finished the first round on two the two primary ones of those three. And then went into the appeals process, and then we settled. Hmm. And the reason that I wanted what was important to me was to get the those two litigated out through the first level, because what they had done was they had tried to stay out of court for as long as possible. Yeah. And I I wanted to force the the goal is to destroy you before you have your day in court. Right. And I wanted to force them into court 
to prove that they had no evidence mm. of any wrongdoing. And it was really funny because we got to the final, the first day of the final trial, and they canceled it on the eve of trial three times, wow. which is phenomenally expensive. Wow. And yeah, it was so dirty. Anyway, so I, I refused, you know, and it, that's when the physical harassment got really dangerous because they're trying to get me to settle and I wouldn't. I wanted them to have to come into court and put their case down. And it was really funny because my attorneys didn't believe me that there was no evidence of any wrongdoing because they just, given the smear campaigns and the adamacy of the other side. So, but we forced them into court. And after the first day, it turned out they had nothing. And my attorney turned to me, why does the sheet? And he says, oh my God, they have nothing. They have no evidence of any wrongdoing. I said, I told you that. I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> yeah, but that's why. And I guess they got afraid because then they realized everything else you've been telling them is true. <laughs> well, but here's what they realized yeah. is that you you could have, you know, multiple agencies of the government, multiple corporate media, multiple covert operations, all acting together in concert. Mm -hmm to create a fake story when there was absolutely nothing. I mean, we caught them several times trying to frame evidence. They couldn't find anything. They, they thought when they got in and started to do discovery that they could find a parking ticket. Yeah, because usually everybody, if they're scrutinized, will, you will find something, right? Right. <laughs> Except I had, having been with my experience, yeah. the way I ran the company – You know, we used to have uh, things called audits called war games where I would say to the auditors, look, a secretary of, of HUD has just ordered the Department of Justice to destroy me. So I want you to audit everything and clean it so that we are perfect. We spent a great deal of money on making sure we were... So you knew the battle you were going into, basically, and you were prepared. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I knew the battle. I thought I was prepared. I underestimated, I had always believed because I was sincere in wanting to contribute to the effort of the guys at the top. Mm. I thought if I was offsides or doing something they didn't want, they'd tell me. Mm. So I never believed that they would just throw me overboard. And so... But couldn't they just fabricate something on you? They do have the power to, at least now they do, when everything is digital. Well, here's what I think happened, because I don't think the top guys made the decision to do this. I think you had some of the guys who were on the, you know, in my world, the law isn't the way most people think it is. The law is run by a series of committees mm -hmm. and, you know, who are coordinating because you've got an overt system and a covert system and you're running two parallel civilizations where one doesn't know the other exists and you're trying to keep everything in alignment yeah. and it's very tricky. So, so there, there's lots of discussion, lots of committees. Anyway, um, I think what happened is some of the guys on the committee went off and got a defense contractor to falsify information. And then they brought it back to the committee and lied to everybody else on the committee that I was dirty. So I think, I think somebody told a lie And then part of the problem in getting the whole thing resolved was the committee was trying to avoid going to, you know, having a civil war over me. I was expendable, so better to just throw me overboard than have a civil war. Sure. But what happened was the, the forcing everybody to trial made it clear not only did, you know, that original documentation was false, whatever it was, if I'm right mm – -hmm but also the subsequent efforts to frame us 
you know, the, the effort to frame, the next effort to frame us, we caught and reported and documented was quite extraordinary. And so that every time they sent a team in to get us, it made the mess worse. And I think we'll finally, yeah. That's true, because the whole cover-up or the whole fabrication, th- there's so much in the aftermath of this that could be uncovered in court that yeah. all the effort they put in is more of a risk to them than <laughs> the original. Uh, well, here's setup. the original thing. Yeah, the the you get these situations, and what's happening with the Russia ruse is a similar situation. I was on a show about six weeks ago with Greg Hunter, and – James Clappard had just testified and, and Greg said, well, you know, it turns out there's nothing on this Russia thing. And so it's going to go away. I said, no, it's not going to go away. They don't need evidence. They don't need facts. Mm. All they need to do is to just keep, you know, the, there are lots of tactics of disinformation, how you create a story out of nothing. Yeah. But I watched them for, for 11 years, create a story out of nothing. And it went on and on and on. And, um, that's why, for me, one of the great things that helped me was I decided uh, in 1998, after a, uh, an interview with the Department of Justice, that facts were of no matter or in, of any interest. In other words, all the money on the planet needed me to be wrong. Mm. So what I did is I took, uh, I took two attorneys and two computer software people and a couple of paralegals, and we spent four and a half months putting all the legal documents up on a website in in you know in sort of so you could click around and you could read the story but click to literally hundreds of thousands of pages of legal documents wow. and we launched it it was very interesting we launched it and literally within a relatively short period of time the most corrupt judge left the bench and um, all sorts of shifts happened hmm. In the litigation, now it didn't stop. It just got meaner and lower life and dirtier. But, <laughs> hmm. but part of, you know it was trench warfare where you had to use transparency to constantly make it more and more difficult for them to frame you, and you just get it down to almost nothing. And if you look at the final cases, um, we won everything except for one allegation. And if you look at what they what they did to Trump up you know, uh, a loss for us on that one allegation. It's so pathetic. It's so funny. It's so, it was really when it happened, I was furious because it, it was so cheap. It was like, you guys don't even know how to lose. So, um, uh, at that point, what I would do is when they would do something really underhanded, I would publish, you know, something, uh, you know, that they didn't want published. So it, when they did that, when I published something called Meditations at the Crossroads about um, my belief that the intelligence agencies assassinated my mother. And um, it was funny because one of my goals in life was to figure out what had really happened to my mother. And I think through this process... And, and she, her demise came after this uh, open conflict, right? No, no, no. It it happened when I was... Uh, it happened many years ago. It happened right after George H.W. Bush was appointed to the CIA as executive CIA. Hmm. Um, it was right after the Church Commission hearings. Okay. And and what happened was uh, Bush got appointed, and his his basically his scope was to clean up the mess created by the Church Commission. And people literally from a week after he got appointed, they started dying like flies. Right. right. My mother was one of them. 
Uh, uh, how was she involved in this then? What was her role? You know something? She, I think she knew a lot about some of the activities going on in her place. And What was her place? Philadelphia. Oh, okay. So I think she knew a lot about the – read Meditations at the Crossroads okay. and we can do another show because it's, yeah. it's a whole other shaggy dog story. I see, I see. It's a detour. But uh, you're so lucky for the timing because if this was five years earlier, internet couldn't have come to your rescue. Right. It sounds to me you were running some kind of WikiLeaks the, uh, war trench right. with them. The internet saved my life. Yeah, yeah. And – What what happened was I had two I had a terrible experience with the New York Times and the Bush administration that convinced me that the New York Times was just fake news, and then uh, during the litigation I had uh, an even more dreadful experience with the Washington Post, and I decided it was one of the best decisions I made in 1998. I said I am never going to spend another minute of my life talking to corporate news. No. That's it. Yeah, because after Watergate, no way they would have let the press work as it had worked up to then, right? Uh, I Well, I think you and I have to talk about Watergate, but I, I just decided that corporate media was a complete waste of my time. And so what happened was I started, you know, the internet was just starting with internet shows and, and there were radio shows. And I started to, to, to talk publicly with anybody who wanted to discuss it. And what would happen is people would ask me questions. I would get emails and they would ask me questions. And basically what I said is I'm going to answer people's questions. So I started literally trying to answer every question I would get. I made my email address open and I just started answering questions. And believe it or not, that process of answering questions grew into what is a very nice, successful business today called the Salir Report. I'm still answering people's questions. So that's how it's... Yeah. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I just started answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and it w- I'd get questions that I couldn't answer, so then I'd get guests, and you know, and one thing led to another, and it got too expensive to do, and so I started charging subscriptions, and the next thing you know, I've got a business. Yeah. So it literally evolved into a business, and I'm still trying to answer everybody's question. So that's how you faced over to the information business. Mm-hmm. Well, I was sitting... In uh, I was sitting in the office litigating with with the federal government, and uh, it was in 1998, and I realized that the extraordinary amounts of money had started to go missing from the federal government, and I started to realize the extent of, you know, there was a coup d'état. It was a financial coup d'état, yeah. and I realized we're in a financial coup d'état, and I turned my attorney, and I said, oh, my God. We're going to have to st- find a way to support ourselves at retail. And she looked at me and said, good luck, honey, because people like we did hundred billion. We did a billion dollar deals. We did $500 million deal. We, we were used to doing huge, very sophisticated stuff. Mm. And the idea of working for individuals was, I mean, we had no idea how to do it. You know, we were wholesale, not retail. Anyway, so um, so I started answering the questions, and then I got questions about how to manage people's money, and you can't answer those questions without being uh, an investment advisor. No. So after I settled the litigation, I started ask, answering the questions, but then after I settled the litigation, I created an investment advisory company, and then we turned the Solari report uh, to a subscription service uh, shortly thereafter. And so those are my two businesses, and they just evolved from trying to help people deal with this phenomena we're all dealing with of 
of remarkable change, including a financial coup d'etat. I want you to elaborate on a few more exciting things before we go to a break. But I just want to say about the Solari report that Uh you work as a financial advisor to anyone who... And and we're talking down to earth, right? Like anyone who wants to know how they can improve their economy, they can contact you and and get your services. Uh, Not anyone, because uh, it's a highly regulated industry. So I'm not uh, authorized to do most countries other than the United States essentially just focus on American citizens. Because, for example... So, so not, not companies, but private persons. Yeah. Very occasionally, I'll do a company for an existing client. You know, it's a family business. Mm. But I like to keep things... Rel- I don't like to work for large corporations. Mm. I think they're... I think you can sort of be retail or wholesale. But small businesses. Right. So it's it's family-owned businesses that, that I will help occasionally. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say, because you're very popular there, and I guess... It's logical, actually. The reason your advice is superior is that any financial analysis is dependent on the model they're using. Now, if a model is reflecting reality, or or let me rephrase that, uh, the more a model is reflecting reality or the more of reality a model is reflecting, the better advice Granted, of course, that you have the basic rudimentary understanding and all that stuff that comes with. There's so many financial wizards who doesn't have a model that's based on the entire reality, which is why, despite their brilliant, brilliant, the excellence, they fail in their <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, advices. And I venture that your advantage is that your model is based on more of reality than the others because... You're one of the few whose model is including what we also could call the black economy. Because if reality uh-huh. consists of a black economy that is even bigger than the white economy, then obviously everybody who's just looking at the white path will get so much wrong. But if you're looking also in the black economy, then you have a superior model which will give you superior advice. You, you see the reasoning? Well, let, let me be a little bit more humble than that because, uh, <laughs> because no, there have been times when my model has been very successful and times when it hasn't. You know, the best model in the world financially, uh, in my experience, is to have massive amounts of inside information. Mm. So, uh, And it's one of the ways people get tricked on financial fraud. They're always trying to do business with somebody who they think has massive amounts of inside information, and the problem is they end up getting harvested. But yeah. When I worked on Wall Street, uh, when I was a partner at Dylan Reed, I used to get a lot more inside information. It was very phenomenally useful. Mm. <laughs> so, so if you're operating the way I am without that massive inside information, it's it's harder. Of course, but but that's my point. Because right. if you have inside information, that means that you have more leads as to reality. So, well, think of it this time. There there are times when the financial markets and asset values go where the establishment want them to go. Mm. And there are times when they don't, right. when when the establishment gets hiccuped. And so I'm a genius when the establishment gets hiccuped. When, when everything is working the way the establishment wants it to go, a guy with massive inside information is probably going to outwit me 
in certain respects. So it's uh, yeah, I but that's that's if he doesn't want to be a predator on you. I mean, right. loot you. Well, I, I here's the thing: it's that's that's what makes this hard for everybody. It's complicated. So it's it's a kind of world where it's extremely important if you do what I do to say that you promise to do the best. Mm. Um, but we're operating in a world where where I have a very small percentage of the knowledge I would need to know. And markets are not being driven by f- economics. They're being driven by highly uneconomic politics. Yeah. So, but but at, le- at least you, there's no getting away from that you have two important uh, criterias for anyone who do want financial or investment advice. And that is, one, you're sincere. They can count on you. You're not there to loot them. No. That's very important. And the other one is that at least you're 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 taking into account the black economy. If you if you right. don't even do that, right. you're, you're you're lost. That's like having uh, just you know one eye seeing. So well, I'll give you an example because for starting in about two thousand, I would get on the radio, and you had a whole group of financial commentators who say the financial system is going to collapse, and mm. I would say no, it's not. <laughs> They would say the finance, and you know, so this went on until this year. So it's, they're saying it's going to collapse and I'm saying, no, it's not saying that. And right. And, and one of the reasons I knew was because all the money that's been shifted out of civilization one into civilization two is still sloshing around and coming back and being reinvested. Mm. So, so that money is still there coming and, and they don't see it, you know, that's number one. And number two, I understand the power of that money and the related technology to control, let alone to shift the economics. If you take the all the technology that's been created through the black budget mm-hmm. and implement it in everyday life, oh my God. <laughs> we could be everyone could be prosperous. Yeah, forget it. There's no debt problem. No. There's no debt problem. So so you you have to look at both civilizations and you have to look at the technology and the control mechanisms of both to understand the total economy. Mm. And um, so where I've been right by saying it's not going to collapse, it's going to slow burn, or you know, various things where I've been right, it's because I'm looking at both civilizations and trying to estimate what it means. You remind me of the financial version of Pierce Corbin. Have you heard about Pierce Corbin? No. He's uh, actually he's a brother of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who's probably going to be the next prime minister over there in England. Uh-huh. But he's uh, very popular in the UK. He's always on mainstream TV because his uh, metrological models are superior. He always gets it right. Really? And okay. when the mainstream uh, outlets say this and that will happen in the next year, he comes out. He, I mean, he is a mainstream scholar and meteorologist, but uh-huh. his model is realizing that there's no anthropogenic climate change. There is climate change, right. but it's not anthropogenic. Right. And so, and always they ask him these uh, silly TV people, they say, oh, how can you, are you prophetic? How? And he keeps saying, no, no, it's because <laughs> the climate change is not man-made. And, but that, of course, that narrative, they can't fathom a process. So always they go, get back to, are you prophetic? What, <laughs> what's your secret? And that's kind of how I look at you here, right? You're, you're also telling the truth, but they don't want to see it. Well, but here's the thing. I, I don't believe in prophecy. 
I don't believe anybody can no. predict the future. No, of course. I believe that we're all responsible to invent the future. So I'm much more into helping people inventing their own and collectively inventing our future. I'm a great believer in what I call scenario thinking, mm. which is you need to have uh, scenarios, possible scenarios of what the future may bring. And I'm interested in helping people be successful in all scenarios. Now, of course, the more resources you have, the more you can protect against all scenarios. But um, scenario thinking helps me understand what variables are important and to watch things go in different ways. So, for example, in 2006, I came into 2006 um, and 7 and 8 and 9, and I was very good at making sure everybody stayed out of um, the financial markets, uh, in most respects, because I knew the, you know, I knew the crash was coming. Mm. Now, what's interesting is we still have in many respects, a fragile financial system. If we get another big crash, uh, which is possible, although I think unlikely given the system's willingness to go to war instead, it's going to be much harder for anybody, including me to predict. Yeah. Of course. So, I mean, it's yeah. because the whole game is rigged. But if you go back in time, before it was so thoroughly rigged, you do see that it is possible to, not prophecy, but predictions. Like, you know, probably about William Delbert Gann, who got famous because he launched, and I know that uh, Cycles Research Institute and stuff have been right. trying to, to crack the code, but he launched uh, some uh, models that are superior. He predicted the uh, uh-huh. crash in, in, the old crash in New York uh, back in, um, when was it, in the early 20th century. Right. He lived between 1878 and 1955, but if he lived today, his models wouldn't work because there's no organic market anymore. I mean, I have right. a big heart for libertarianism, but I look at them and regard how completely naive they are because they believe there's a free market going on. <laughs> I don't realize. No, there's no, you know, what there is is just constant interventions. Yeah. And digital technology has given them the ability to manipulate and manage the economy at a very granular level, both the asset side of the balance sheet and the financial side of the balance sheet. So, and, and to me, the, you know, my 11 plus years of litigation with the federal government was a giant training program in understanding exactly how that control works. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Thank God. Something good came out of it. Can I tell you something? Sure. My dream from the time I was a little child was to get out. You know, I wanted out. And it just goes to show you I got exactly what I asked for. Right. And the only way you really can get out, you're not supposed to be able to get out, was sort of my impression. But the way I got out was I got thrown out. And I, I would say that the next time I ask for something, I'll say I want out and I want it to be a pleasant process. But mm. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but I got what I asked for. You know, yeah. what you invest is what you get back. Yeah, so. <laughs> and that's a very high price for a very high goal, right? <laughs> right. I'm officially an outsider. <laughs> yeah. But hey, before we go to break, I want to squeeze out of you a couple of more insider stories. And these are on the more, let's say, the exotic side of it. I do know, uh-huh. I've heard you talk about you were offered once to meet the others. <laughs> 
<laughs> to put it like that. Could you share that story with us? It's, it's yeah, and I just, before I start the story, I just have yeah. to tell you, I have no idea what it was about. Right. You know, so, so I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's hear it from your, yeah. from your view back then, right? Okay. So, so I was in the middle of the, the most uh, sort of boisterous part of my fight, my squabble with the federal government. The, you know, the, the shriek-a-meter, uh, the media shriek-a-meter was turned on high volume. And I got a call from a guy who runs, runs a little think tank that does a lot of work for the Navy. And he said, uh, I can see from the media that you're, uh, you might be available. Come, let's have dinner. So I went down to Union Station in Washington to have dinner with him. And he said, uh, the secretary, uh, th there's a new undersecretary of the Navy, and he's just asked me to do a strategic plan high level for the Navy. And we we noticed from the papers that you may be shutting the company and you might be available. Hmm. And I said, well, according to the papers, you know, I'm supposed to be in prison shortly. He said, oh, we know that's just politics. Don't worry about it. Hmm. So I said, okay, well, I'm happy to entertain this. And I made him a proposal where I would give him my time for his strategic planning process if he would give me some time to help me figure out what in the world was going on in my situation and how to solve it. You know, I was still looking for the quick political fix. So um, anyway, so the undersecretary and his wife came over to my house for brunch. And then I went to a series of think tanks and met lots of really smart, nice admirals and generals retired hmm. who were helping with strategic planning. So after like the third meeting, I kind of felt we were wandering. So I closed the door after everybody left and I turned to the think tank guy and I said, look, I'm a very high performance person. I want to know what the deliverable is because I want whatever the deliverable is, I want the Navy to be very pleased. We did a good job. Mm -hmm. So I want to know how to do that. So what's the goal here? And he looked at me and he said, well, the Navy wants to understand what it's like to operate and function in a world where the average American knows that E.T. exists and lives among us. Hang on. About when was this? Uh, this was 1998. Mm. Could have been 19. I think it was 98. Right. So I said to him, I said, well, you know, I don't know that. I don't know that E.T. exists and lives among us. And he said, well, would you like to have lunch with some aliens? And I had this image. <laughs> Did you think he was kidding? Al, I had... <laughs> I didn't know. It was very pan-faced. Yeah. I had this image when he said it. I had an image of a picture of a tabloid. I'm checking out at the grocery store. There's a tabloid there, and there's a picture of me talking with some gray alien. It says, Fitz thinks she's lunching with aliens. And I thought, oh, this is how they're going to get me. Right. This is how they're going to get me. Right. So I said to him, you know, I'm managing too much risk right now to be seen lunching with aliens. <laughs> So, <laughs> That's an excellent so, comeback. So, so I said, are there any, I'm a speed reader. Are there any books I can read? So he gave me a list of all the best books on the topic and I proceeded to read them at high speed. And if wow. your tool to understand if something is true or not is money, hmm. it doesn't work because it off planet doesn't work. Y you can't map out whether it makes sense or not because it's outside that yeah. system to a, to a large extent, not to say it, it doesn't relate. Anyway, so I'm reading the books. He calls me and he asks me to join his board. Mm. So I said yes, and I walk into the first board meeting. I think this was 98. I can figure it out. It's on the website. You mean the board of his company or the board of this project? The, no, the think tank. The, yeah. the project fizzled out. It sort of went nowhere, so it fizzled. Oh, okay. So uh, I went, I walked into the board meeting and 
I really believe that a lot of the physical harassment, et cetera, is being done by government contractors probably working for the CIA or jointly for the CIA and Department of Justice. Anyway, so James Woolsey, who resigned, who left, I think, in late 95 or 96. Yeah, uh, that's a guy that Stephen Greer – I mean, he's aware of the alien thing. So. So Woolsey's flipping a pen and I walk in his backs to me and the the guy's running the think tank says to me, my middle name is Austin. He says, Austin, welcome, you know, welcome to the board. And Woolsey freaks and the pen flies up and he kind of just looks at me terrified and I realized I was right. It is the CIA. The CIA is my problem. Wow. So Woolsey was a part of that board meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the board. Wow. So, so I sit down and I have a rule for your first board meeting on any new organization. You don't talk. You're a newbie. Right. You listen. Yeah. Okay. So they're talking about whether or not their white paper for the year is going to be helping the American people contemplate the fact that ET exists and lives among us. Wow. So I'm just listening. But here's my experience, Al. When I'm in a board meeting and we're talking about a deep, dark secret, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of powerful resonation in the room. There was no resonation in the room. It was like flat. I was, it's so weird. It was, was what is this about? Hmm. Trying to trick me? What's this? <laughs> yeah, and if they, wa- if they did want to discredit you, that's the atmosphere. That, it would be artificial. It wouldn't be a natural feeling to, to what was going on. I, I don't know. The whole thing just felt weird. Yeah, but then again, it, it is a weird subject to discuss. But in retrospective, uh, I think maybe uh-huh. you, they wanted to change tactics. Maybe they wanted you to, to make you an insider because you were a problem. And that's often a good way to get rid of problems, buy them off one way or the other, right? And this well, would, I mean, the, the ultimate, when you really can't get out, that's when you're in, in on these secrets. So maybe that was uh, something they wanted to do. Well, here's the thing. They were having... The think tank, they were encouraging the think tank to do a whole lot of things with my methodologies with money and mapping money. But the way the think tank and they were approaching it was stupid. It made no sense. Mm. Yeah, okay. Now, they also tried They also tried to have the leading GIS software contractor, I think, by my company. And that didn't work because, you know, in, in all of these cases, I was not interested in partnering with something that had no integrity. And, you know, you have this cultural problem where you have something that has integrity mm-hmm. and and then you have something that doesn't have integrity. Both parties are somewhat naive given what's going on, but you can't get them together because there's, you know, it's like force fields that always bounce away from each other. Anyway, yeah. so uh, one thing led to another. The litigation dragged out. And um, at one point, the think tank head was very unhappy with me because I was started to publish about narcotics trafficking by the U.S. government. And he, he said to me, the U.S. military would never traffic in drugs. Oh, my God. And which, which to me was unf- – I said, Vietnam was a drug war. What, what are you talking about? And, and he's supposed to be informed and he's supposed to discuss right. big secrets and he goes back to that basic level of right. ignorance. So so I said to him, wait a minute, you're you're trying to get me to persuade – you're trying to tell me I can have lunch with aliens and you don't know the military. Exactly, you know? yeah. I mean because if you look at the amount of drugs flowing across our borders, how, how can the military – not know <laughs> you know it's good but yeah and not just that but by this time it was all in the open the the iron contrast scandal all that stuff right right so any anyway uh 
Right. But remember, people are all in their little boxes. Yeah, I know. I mean, when I say open, right. I mean everybody who wants to be in the know could be in the know. I'm not saying like the man right. in the street knew, but it was there. Right. Even I was informed about this uh, back then, very early. I was at a lecture. Actually, the, I think the man the man in the street knew more than most people in the establishment because the man in the street is on the street dealing with it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so so I left Washington and moved to Tennessee. So I resigned from the board because I couldn't just drive up to Washington for the board meetings. Anyway, so when 9-11 happened, I tried to get the activists on 9-11 interested in the black budget because it was clear that the black budget was at play in terms of the financial aspects. Yeah, I have questions about that. Right, let alone about the technology. So I... Um, yeah, on the technology. Uh, I couldn't get them interested. So finally I said, okay, given the extraordinary urgency and danger of our situation, because it was clear, you know, that 9-11 was about starting a multi-decade World War III and was really going to, that was really going to destroy the country. I said, okay, I got to tell the story. Right. So I published an article called What's Up the Black Budget, where I tell the story and basically say, I have no idea what, you know, I have no idea if this is true or not or disinformation. I have no idea. I can't tell you. But what I'm telling you is if you look at how much money is disappearing down the black budget, we need to deal with this. Yeah. We can't pretend it's not there. And so I ended up getting an enormous amount of uh, people saying, you know, sort of attacks. And I finally got a call from somebody in uh, Europe saying, you know, I run a major journal on ufos and the ufo community is trying to decide whether you're telling the truth apparently the think tank head and woolsey were running around telling people i was a liar and i said look i there's nothing i can tell you i can't i wrote everything in the article there's nothing more i can tell you i don't if it's useful great if it's not uh, i just don't care and this but was, I, I guess, before the disclosure project that outed all these insiders who, who came forth. So this would no, be... No, this was after. Oh, this was after. after. Oh, and still they had a problem. Yeah, and it was interesting. They, they called me back about a month later and said, you know, we've decided that you're telling the truth. And I said, why are you telling me the truth? Why, why do you think I'm telling the truth? And they said, apparently Woolsey, this guy and Woolsey have done it to other people. You're not the yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. So... Right, so he did gaslight the Greer thing for a while. Mm. Yeah, apparently, I think the I think it was Greer they did it to first. So, anyway, so that was that. Now, what was interesting is, uh, periodically, I would have somebody come back and say, "I was meeting with this think tank guy, and he says you're a liar." And the last time it happened, I sent a message back and I said, "I have the board minutes. I'm scratching out their last names and email addresses." And if you if you call me a liar one more time, I'm publishing it. Wow. And so once again, I got called a liar. Oh, what was interesting is the think tank that put out a a newsletter saying that everybody should read Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. That I was a person of impeccable integrity. Thought that was interesting. <laughs> uh, and then and then I don't know what happened one more time, and I said that's it, and I published the board minutes. So they're in fact they're up on my website. Oh, so you did end up publishing them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah, so I told them if they did it again, boom, and there it went. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, and and then I got 
got all sorts of contacts about how they really weren't saying aliens existed. They were just talking about whether they might have, you know, all this yeah, right. backpedaling and modified yeah, hangouts. Yeah. So I have no idea what that was about. No, well, my hunch is that they wanted to make it impossible for you to get uh, get her in, get this nuisance on board. She has resources; we can use them. You know, she she beat us up a couple of times. Uh-huh. Let's do it the easy way. But uh, the, uh, uh, even more interesting aspect to this that we can infer infer from the story that is that which I have suspected all the time, and I won't even start arguing for why because that's another program. But that is that okay. this. Aliens, quote-unquote, are really homo sapiens. That's how you could have... If you had went to that lunch, uh, you would... So uh, when you say homo sapiens, are, are the, you're saying they're... Um, they're not grace, not uh, reptiles or whatever. All these, you know, look, looking like insects or... They look like human beings, like you and me. That's the only way they can live among us. And in fact, and we'll get to that at the end, I guess, a little bit about the breakaway civilization. In fact, you're, they may even have originated from your Earth, for all we know. So you're saying, right, so so one theory is uh, we have a different species co-located on Earth, and they look like humans. Yeah, but uh, hey, define species. If they can breed with us, they're really not a different species, even if they originated elsewhere. Right. If if they can't breed with us, sure, we're talking in all the species. Right. But uh, if you look at the ancient accounts, they can breed. Right. In fact, I think Homo sapiens are spread out across the galaxy. Different various. I mean, even on Earth, we have people who look so complete different that they could be different species if right. you were going by the looks, right? Right. And if you go back in time and look at the evidence back in time, we've had a many programs on antediluvian civilization and we'll have more. Uh-huh. But then you see also that many of these things that were determined to be different species, like they said Neanderthals were a different species. No, they weren't. They were just a local er- branch of Homo sapiens and they breeded with us yeah so i don't think it's that exotic uh, actually and that's the best way they can move among us if they are from a different culture a different civilization it's looking like us right that's my point yeah absolutely yeah right but uh yeah i distracted uh, us away for so i think it's a good place to take a little break then okay and uh, when we come back we will delve even deeper into this matter about the black budget and really try to make the layman out there and me because i'm one of them i i don't understand economics <laughs> so well see if we can understand this so-called black economy okay why don't we do that yeah. then we get it because uh, you see I, yeah because i have uh, taken notes uh, through many interviews through many investigations and i've saved them all for you because you're the one to you know i'm going to ask you about uh of course, Rumsfeld, 2.3 trillions. I'm going to ask right. you about the gold bears, the billion under 9-11, the Black Eagle Trust, the housing collapse, 5 trillion. Yeah. The 18 billions in Iraq, the 25 billions from Federal Reserve to CIA that was just, you know, from WikiLeaks. All these figures, I want them out there. The reason is that when people hear these specific facts, eventually the cognitive dissonance goes away and it don't support them that we're being looted right big time right so right. Uh, so in part two i'll ask you about many of these figures and and eventually we'll see if we can weave a more coherent understanding of this black budget and 
at the end, where is all this money going? Because that's the big question, right? Right. That's the, I guess we could say the $15 trillion question. (laughs) 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 So, yeah. Sounds good? Yeah, it sounds yeah, great. And, and that's, I can go as long as you want. So there's no interruption. That's great. That's great. Okay. 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 All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel or Facebook page. Thanks.